welcome to Invasion of the Potty Snatchers. I'm Neil. And I'm Paddy. Well, today we're going to be looking at Chinatown from 1974. It stars Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway and John Huston, and is directed by Roman Polanski. Which is something that made us both pause and decide whether we were going to actually do this film. Um, I think we both watched it in the 80s when... Yeah, early 90s. We weren't really aware of the situation around surrounding Polanski. We'll try and fill you in on basically why Polanski is more than problematic. He is a convicted rapist, child abuser, and then we'll try and justify why we are still watching this film given what we know now. So Polanski was convicted in 1977 of raping a, sorry, of molesting a child. He pled guilty and then ran away to Europe to avoid the consequences of his act. Is that right now? I think that's broadly right. He's accused of being in Jack Nicholson's house, taking photographs for a fashion magazine of a young model who's 13 at the time. Mm -hmm. And he's accused of raping this girl. And he then enters into a long legal sort of wrangling where he's going to plea bargain, plead guilty. He initially pleaded not guilty to all charges. He pleads guilty to a charge of unlawful intercourse with a minor. And so more, child abuse, in other words. Yes. But this is a case, this is like, it's one of the first few cases where someone of his fame is accused of such a major crime. And he's his, his lawyers and a lot of support from all the people around him, don't forget this is pre-internet, so it's literally you have to go and speak to him about this or read what's been written into the court proceedings and not everybody's going to do that. And that's the case for years later. Mm. He can just tell people his side of the truth. But he decides to plead guilty to that one charge and he, having been in prison for about 42 days at that point, because he's waiting on sentencing and all of this, will only do a small amount of further time or even be released immediately following sentencing. And then he's free to proceed his career. He's told the judge is going to renege on the deal and he's going to sentence you to decades in prison. And so then he runs to Europe, basically, uh, basically anywhere without an extradition treaty. Yes. So mainly at this point, Switzerland and France. We are talking about a man who has admitted to a crime, a disgusting crime, and not faced any punishment for it. Essentially, yeah. And yet we're still watching the film. Yes. How did we justify this to ourselves? Like with a lot of art, if you experience something before you know what the people who are involved in making that are, are like, you just experience, whether it's a song or a movie, you just experience that. And for me, watching this for the first time, it was like, this is a perfect film. It's got everything I want from the movie. So, yeah, I've watched this film in once, I think, a long time ago. And I can recognise it's a very good film. I've also watched other Polanski films. And I, it took me a very long time to discover that he was, in fact, the criminal. And I, I now feel very uncomfortable watching them. But I think we can acknowledge that this is the work of hundreds, if not thousands of people, and not just one person. Yes, and I think his role in making this, obviously the director orchestrates all aspects of production, but I think the main creative force for this film is Robert Town, the scriptwriter. It's his idea. He's developed it over several years from different sources of information, how LA is being built up. He wanted to look at corruption in City Hall and things like this. He wanted to do a detective story. He also wanted to make a film to showcase the talents of his actor buddy, Jack Nicholson, who at that point was not famous. I think that's sort of like pre-Easy Rider sort of time. And then 
He's got this brilliant script and everybody can recognize he's brilliant, but they're looking around for someone who can direct it. And Nicholson has been friends with Polanski since before Polanski's wife was murdered and helped him through that. Apparently even went to the Manson trial. Right. So for those, if you don't know, Polanski was married to Sharon Tate, who was murdered by the Manson family. Uh, You may, if you've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's, that's what it's based on. Yeah. Except in real life, everybody in that house died. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, obviously he'd been through a lot of trauma in his own life, as well as being in the Warsaw Ghetto as a child. This is Polanski. So he had a lot of issues in his life, but he's recognised at the time as being an extraordinary gifted director. He's one of the new breed of up-and-coming directors at the end of the 60s, start of the 70s, who are being part of that auteur movement that I'm so excited about personally, where the director's vision becomes the key part of the filmmaking. Yes, it's all to do with them taking charge of everything and being considered to be the primary motivating force for Mm. creative decisions, where, of course, that's not necessarily the case. It's people buying into his singular vision, perhaps. And you're saying, in this case, this is more about the writer's vision. Yeah, it's more about far more about town having this complete idea, complete story all laid out. They had arguments over the script, but they had to persuade Polanski to come back to LA. After the murder of his wife, he was not comfortable being there, but he was persuaded by Bob Evans, the producer, and Nicholson to come into the movie, to come back to LA, that they would look after him. And um, he needs to come back. And he agrees to, he argues over the script, and they chop and change it a little bit more to his liking give it a less happy ending, a different ending than was originally planned. But essentially, Town had planned three different movies. It was this one, there would be a sequel set ten years later, and another, a third film set six years after that, and expanding the main character of Jake Gitty's The Down at Heel, Private Eye trope. Mm-hmm. Picking up from the Bogart and the film noir that it yes. echoes. Showcasing L.A., Raymond Chandler's L.A., you know, this sort of romantic, yeah. nostalgic period. Again, if you haven't seen it, this is a film made in the 70s, but set very firmly in... 1937. Exactly there. Yeah. So it's got a real strong period look. And if you watch some of the extras on the Blu-rays and so on, you'll see Polanski sort of reminiscing about how his mother dressed and so on and how that influenced mm. how he got people to do their makeup and so on. But it's it's the invested work of a lot of people polanski said he was on this as a director for hire he didn't have a passion for it necessarily and that might have helped him direct because it's the distance okay so it'll be interesting for both of us i think because this would be the first first time for me certainly that i've watched the film knowing what i know about polanski knowing that he's a criminal knowing that he's a rapist knowing that he's a child abuser and saying those things makes me already nervous and anxious about watching this. And I want to know, can I watch it and overcome those feelings? Yes, it's um, it's a tricky one, isn't it? There's, there could be stuff about people in other films we just don't know about, but we happily watch them. That's a very good point. I mean, yes, we have, no, we have little or no idea about the exploitation of um, people for, during the 30s, 40s, what was going on with casting couches, and yet we happily watch those. So... Shall we stop and have a cup of tea and try and de-stress slightly because it's a bit heavier than we're we're, we're used to? Yes, certainly. Let's let's break out the biscuits and then we'll start the movie. I've brought Tiffin. Okay. I think we probably need something substantial to go with this film. Anyway, let's start the film. Let's start the film. 
Okay, so that's the film. Well, that was incredibly complex. It's The plot is one of the most astonishing things about that film, isn't it? I mean, perhaps we should outline it a bit here. More of a spoiler than usual? Yeah, I yeah. think it's necessary because it's so detailed. I mean, it begins with a woman hiring a private detective, Jake Gittis, to follow her husband. Yeah, I mean, he's he specialises in divorces, doesn't he? He thinks it's just a normal job, but the guy is quite powerful, high up in the Water Commission, where it's a desert town. Water's kind of important in the desert. And he takes his photographs, the, the guy's seeing a young work girl. Yeah, and, and we, see, we see him as well uh, scoping out a, a reservoir, a dry reservoir, because it's in the middle of the drought. And sort of business as usual for the guy in charge of water to see what's going yeah. on in the drought yeah so there's no suspicion nothing nothing unusual except then the guy's real wife turns up and goes i'm gonna sue, sue you really sue your ass for this because yeah. it's all over the newspapers that this guy's had an affair yeah and jake hasn't authorized the release of those photos but then the husband the guy that jake's been following turns up dead at the bottom of a culvert a river river thing yeah sort of sluice thing doesn't it he's yeah. drowned in a drought drowned in a drought which is yeah that's the thing isn't it yeah. kind of ironic uh actually when jake also goes to the coroner doesn't he and the coroner tells him that a drunk has been found also drowned but at the dry end of the river at the place where we'd seen jake observing the other dead man the, yes the, the mulray yes mulray the water power person and so Jake goes out. It's all interesting to Jake. He's now being asked all sorts of questions by the police, by Mrs. Mulray. He goes to start investigating himself, what's going on. At this point, Mrs. Mulray also starts to pay him to investigate, perhaps because she thinks that the police are think the police need some further help investigating. Yeah, some sort of problematic thing with her. She's trying to tell the truth all the time, but she can't quite explain what's going on. And we can't see what it is. Jake can't see what it is, but she clearly doesn't want the police sticking their noses too much into her. Yeah, business. she's got she's a woman with something to hide, and yeah. she wants Jake to get this cleared up so that she can get it to the police and get the police moved on yeah. to something else soon. And then while it's investigating, Jake uh, observes that all this water is being dumped out of the system into the ocean and gets his uh, nose slit for the uh, snooping around and trying to investigate. And spends the rest of the film with a massive bandage across his nose, which is an unusual choice when you have... I mean, you don't normally see the scar, the star of the film being disfigured and having huge evidence of that across it. I think that's quite a statement thing through the film. Yes. It's, um, he's obviously clearly quite a dandy, isn't he, Gittis? He's dressed immaculately yeah, all the time. Yeah, and you noted he's got his, he's got his own monogrammed shirts. Yeah. He makes a big deal out of getting his pocket squares right all the time. So his looks matter. His looks really matter. And uh, I think I've seen a suggestion somewhere that the nose slitting is kind of an emasculation thing as well. But it's probably reading a bit too too Freudian into it. <laughs> I think a little bit. He's had his nose cut. Let's say Let's it, just it is what it that. says. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, he goes and finds that somebody is using the names of dead people and retired people to buy the land of farmers who are being displaced because of the drought, because there's no water. And he carries on investigating, and he leads him to Noah Cross. Yes. Now, Noah Cross is the father, as it turns out, of Mrs. Mulray. And he's an extremely powerful, very rich old man who, as he says, has become respectable because he's old. And because he's rich. And because he's rich. And he's 
not to be trusted. He's definitely not to be trusted. But he says that from the start. He's very transparent. I will do what I want to do is yes. what he, is essentially what he's saying. And I'm rich, so you can't stop me. Yes. By the way, here's $10,000 to find the girl that uh, Mr. Mulray was interested in. So Jake is now investigating at least three things which are interlinked all together. So Jake at this point discovers, because the coroner's done the check, that Mulray was drowned in salt water, which is kind of important because he was discovered in a freshwater stream. So he was murdered somewhere and dumped. And then Jake is also investigating the orange groves that the water company tell him are being irrigated with runoff and they're not advertising it, which is why he's seen all this water. But when he goes to the orange groves, no. They're still in, you know, losing hand over fist their crops because there's no water to irrigate them. And he gets beaten up yet again. Of course. This is like the third time that he gets beaten up at this stage. Does not do well in a fight, does Jake. Um, He's rescued by Mrs. Mulray, who then takes him home. And she reveals, at this point she reveals that the girl that Mulray was seeing is her sister. Yes, and Jake is now very disturbed by this because he thinks, everybody's been lying to me. Mrs. Mulray is probably the murderer of her own husband. She's going to quiet the girl up, send her away. I'm going to go to the police with all of this. Yeah, he's actually discovered that, hasn't he? He's, found, he's gone round, he's followed them round and found her. After the rescue, she's gone gone straight back to this to the house where the girl is being kept, what looks like prisoner. Yeah, and it looks... It's typical, actually, throughout the film, that Jake makes huge assumptions at every step of the way. Not all of them are correct. In fact, very few of them turn out to be correct. But at the same time, we're watching. and We we are encouraged to follow and believe that what Jake is seeing is right. It's very cleverly done, the way that the story is told. Yeah, it's always... You, you are presented with the information at the same time as Jake. It's always, he's found it out, now we've got to piece it together at the same time. His assumptions are entirely reasonable. He doesn't ever jump to a conclusion that is inexplicable, and he follows them up. He's a detective. He's reacting to what he sees. It makes sense. And then... Jake has had an exhausting day, and then he receives a mysterious phone call from uh, Anida Sessions, who is the person who impersonated Mrs Mulray at the beginning of the film. And when he walks in, she's been murdered, and the police are waiting for Jake. Yes, because the police have phoned him. They now feel he's responsible for everything. Or he better prove he's not. Otherwise, he's going down. Which, of course, at the time means the chair. At the very least, the police want him to divulge his sources and implicate the people who are actually behind it. I think that they never actually believe it's Jake that's... Yes, they, they've made their, also their reasonable assumptions of what they think is going on. They believe Jake knows far more than he does, which he does, but not quite what they th- think he does. And then we're really into the last stretch of the movie here where everything starts accelerating. Finally. (laughs) And everybody starts colliding together until we finally get to the truth. Which is that Cross is behind everything. He is the person who is buying the land illegally or he's behind the corruption. He's behind the release of the water. He's the murderer of... Hollis Mulray. And we also discover Faye Dunaway's character's secret at this point, uh, which is that her father is cross and he raped her. And so the girl who was seen with Mr Mulray at the start of the film is actually her daughter and her sister and that Cross is the father. And it totally reverses everything you thought was going on before. The cynicism of everybody observing Mulray and this young woman is now revealed as 
practically an uncle with his niece. Dunaway's character has constantly been trying to hide this, constantly trying to tell the truth, but it's just because she just wants her life with her daughter. He's the result of a very complicated situation that she can't put behind her because her father is so powerful. We come to the end of the film, which is a classic shootout, which leads to a tragic ending, which is, which is not satisfying from an emotional sense because you don't see people getting the comeuppance they deserve. But it just makes sense. It's just the right... It's the uh, right ending for this movie, isn't it? It is, because it's the whole feeling is melancholy and this is the sad, downbeat ending. And just as Cross said the whole way through the film, he was going to get what his way. He absolutely ends up getting his way. Yeah. And as we would go away, there's a really great final line. Just leave it. Forget about it, Jake. It's Chinatown. You can't sum it up better than that, can you? Now, Paddy, you didn't enjoy this film totally, did you? No, I found it really dragged. It was glacial pace-wise. And that, I think, is a lot down to editing. There are a lot of establishing shots and closing shots. What's, what do you, what's the opposite of an establishing shot? when you leave Intro and outros? An outro shot from a scene, which lasts for far longer than it needs to. It, it just needs somebody to go and go, yeah, okay, I've got the point here. And this extra five seconds can go. Yeah, they can just snip a masterpiece, can't they, Paddy? That's yes, exactly. they can. Yeah. That Mona Lisa, there's way too much of it. Just cut away all the crap. All the bit. sea bits around the top, yeah. yeah. Nobody needs that bit. We're only interested in the face. Okay, it's not the same as that. This film needs more pace. It's meant to be a thriller, and it's not. It's sleep-inducing at times. Yeah, instead of being adding to the suspense and the mystery, you feel it, take, it took it away from It you. did. Yeah. And it's such, right, for me as well... It is such a complex and involving story. I mean, we've just had to explain it in about eight minutes. You lose track because you're so slowly developing it. They take the pace of a Netflix eight-parter, and this is a story that needs to be taught and tense and be done in an hour and a half so that you can really like, be pushed along by the whole thing. See, I disagree with that because I'd like to wallow in the nostalgia of the setting and with the characters and stuff but actually I can see what you're saying as well that the, the extraneous little bits add up and that there could be 10 minutes of material that perhaps could be sliced out of it and speed things or up. Or 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Yeah, well okay maybe. So apart from the glacial pacing what else did you, was there anything else you didn't like about the film? Yes and I think you agreed that this possibly was extraneous that sex scene where suddenly they're in bed and then kissing, well, kissing first, then in bed. And it just didn't seem to flow from the characters. It just seemed to be put in there. Because you have to have a sex scene sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. There was, well, there was an attraction between the characters. You know, there was never anything other than a, a professional respect. Yeah, up until that point, Jack Nicholson's character, Jake, is all about getting to the truth, revealing the truth, playing the hero. Very much. Um, Faye Dunaway's character is all about hiding the truth because it's too painful for her mm-hmm. uh, and, and wanting to try and live her own life. And that scene does get in the way. I mean, you could see that baby is trying to engineer this sort of sense of intimacy between them so that the next betrayal hits a bit harder. But then he's almost a meet within two seconds. He's, he's helping her again. It doesn't seem to add anything and it doesn't seem to be referenced again later in the film. It doesn't flow organically and it doesn't, lead to a difference in the way that the characters are after. No, no, because the, his reaction at the end 
is entirely in keeping with just someone who's just seen a senseless waste of life. Yeah, not that this is a person who I was in love with or I... And how could he possibly be in love with this woman who's only known for two days? Exactly. I mean, yes, I know, it doesn't make sense. Even in the movie sense. The movie has been so realistic up until this yeah. point. It was a jarring moment in the film. Yeah, and if it, if it hadn't been in the film, I understand from one of the documentaries I watched about this that it, it was a point of contention between the scriptwriter and the director. Um, but you could see why. There's little point to it. But you still loved it. Yeah, I mean... It's still a fantastic film. It's still so well made, so well put together. The, the care and attention to every single character, you know, just in their clothing, the way they behave. Every minor character has something about, had character, basically. They, they had a, either a line or a look or a way they approach, an attitude that screamed their own self in a life. Yeah, even to, there's a police officer, a uniformed police officer who has no lines but just has a little piece where he flicks his nose at Jake after he's had it sliced open, which just makes him give more of a character, more of a person. And every character has something like that. Yeah, and it feels like a 40s film then, doesn't it? It really where does. A Bogart picture where everybody has something sassy to say or some sort mm. of input. And it's so beautifully put together. You can really see where the budget went. That recreation of 40s Los Angeles is insanely clever insanely put together and gorgeous to look at that slightly desaturated technicolor mm -hmm. the way that everybody is dressed perfectly and jake being the absolute pinnacle of that his clothing so good spot on it's interesting isn't it that everybody's hairstyles are perfect whereas you've just come out of the 60s where film set in the war period Sophia Loren has a beehive practically in some pictures, <laughs> Every, you know. By perfect, you mean that they are in keeping with the time? Yes. Because yeah. they do get messed up and Jake gets beaten up a lot. And actually that is, you can see the effects on him. Yes. Yeah. I mean, well, this gets down to, the key thing for me is that Robert Town, the script writer, is the main creative force behind this picture. He'd been developing the script for maybe four or five years beforehand, mm -hmm. partly to write a leading role for his uh, best buddy, Jack Nicholson. Yes. Who he knew as an actor for decades beforehand. They went to acting school together. And that screams out in the performance because it's almost in times a very thinly veiled portrait of himself. Yes, you said that. Um, and Because I don't really know much about Jack Nicholson outside of his performances, but apparently he's a very passionate, excitable, temperamental Yes, let's say that. <laughs> person, and that's what he comes across as on here. It's such a great performance. And he can be sharp with people, but forgive them the next moment. Yeah, there are some amazingly nuanced bits of acting in that. There was a particular moment for me where Faye Dunaway looks at Jack's nose and goes, oh my God, that's awful. And the reaction just across the face to being... Vanity is a key part of Jake's makeup. Um, and that little reaction was just brilliant. Faye Dunaway is the same throughout. Those performances are amazing, but they are reacting to a fantastic script, which really brings out those characters too. It's, there's humour in a lot of the lines. There's humour in the situations. The plot is well-researched and complex. It's not actually the truth of what happened in Los Angeles, but it's the essence of the truth. A lot of these water power corruption scandals did happen in the 1910s, 1920s. It smacks of realism. And as we said, all the sub-characters then add to the realism by having their own inner lives. And we've talked a lot 
so far about the fact that this is such a brilliant portrayal of the 30s, late 30s. It feels like a film that could have been made in the 40s. It could have been played by Bogart. It's a film noir in everything except it's just in made in the wrong era. Yes. Yeah, it's made without any of the restrictions that affected the films in the 1940s. So there's no Hayes Code to obey. You can have a plotline about incest. You can have people swearing. You can have off-colour jokes. There are some very <laughs> off-colour jokes. It's definitely setting itself up, yeah. It's a very adult film uh, in the best sense, and it's complex and complicated, and it's very rich. And, of course, it's very slow. <laughs> but it has... Uh, the, the only the only difference, really, is it's made in colour, and the pacing is different to what would have been the, the norm in the 1940s. Yes, in the 1940s, that film would have been over in an hour and 20. Yeah, mainly because Bogart would have talked fairly rapidly all the time. <laughs> yeah, Jack is very laid back in his... He's very laid back, but he's Jack. Okay, so let's talk about the direction just for a second, because I had some comments. Yes. You, you felt it wasn't perhaps made... It didn't live up to the reputation of Polanski being a great director. No, there are some very poorly constructed shots for key moments. When we are discovering that Mrs. Mulray's has a sister who's been sleep, who's been allegedly sleeping with her husband, we only see the character's hair, and at the same time, it's also blocking off half of the of the of Jake's head. So we can't see his reactions either. It's a very poorly set up set up uh, shot. There are some brilliant shots. There are some lovely ones. There's a, at the start we see Paulie played by Burt Young up against the Venetian blinds, and that's lovely. There's another shot, uh, one of the establishing shots, where we see a car draw up through another blind. But you get the idea. There are some amazing things, and at the same time, there are clunky parts. Yeah, and I, I wonder if this comes from Polanski's lack of passion for this project. It's something he's been convinced to do by Bob Evans, the producer, and Jack Nicholson, um, and Town as well. It's their passion project. He's just facilitating it because he's a bit. He's still a big name director. You said that you said that um, before the screening, that somebody came to him and said it needs a rewrite on the music. Yeah, I mean, even to the extent that they they went to. Uh, a preview, Polanski's friend, who was a composer, said it needs a whole new piece of music composed for this. Polanski agreed, but Polanski was actually due to be in Europe directing an opera. So he left entirely to the producer who said, yeah, no, don't worry, I'll look after it. Jerry Goldsmith rewrote the entire score in nine days flat. And Polanski didn't actually hear that until he went to the Japanese premiere. I think that just indicates a lack of care for this project overall. He's, he's very lucky, I think, to get away with being called a genius for his work on this film. And it could be. I mean, he didn't express any problems with the first cinematographer they were using, but Bob Evans fired that cinematographer for taking too long over setting up shots and so on. They then had to hire whoever was available and picked on... John Alonso, who by and large seems to have done a fantastic job, but is a documentary uh, lighting cameraman and did his own thing. And perhaps that's why some of these shots are a little clunky. They um, are. There's some bad, there's some strange lighting choices. Overall, can we forget about Polanski when we're watching this film? Can we forget about what he's done? 
I think while you're watching it, yes. I think you're right, because he's not on screen. If he was on screen the whole time. If he was the star of the film, yeah. It would be a different thing, wouldn't it? Yeah, he's not the star. He, As with all directors, they sort of sat in the background. Without comparing this to anybody else. It's relatively easy to watch this because... There's a mastery of the art form here on display because it comes from the script and it comes from the performances. So, okay, let's wrap up. Can you watch this film knowing what you know about Polanski? I think yes. But if you do know about his history and so on, you might well make a decision not to involve yourself with any of his films, and that's perfectly understandable. Yeah, I think I think you've got it exactly right. And, and that seems like a good place to wrap this up. I think you're right, Paddy. Okay, so thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Invasion of the Potty Snatchers. Take care.